Now, Heavenly Father, we do turn our attention to your holy word, and we pray as we open our Bibles that you would open our hearts as we do every week. Father, this is a living supernatural word sent to save us, to heal us, to instruct us on the way to be blessed and to live forever. We pray that we can hear it, hear what your spirit, your living spirit has to say to each person here a message tonight. Help each person to get it, to live it. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll talk about a panic attack, poor Saul. One day you're off chasing dad's stray donkeys and you come to realize, as we did last week reading it, that it's all been some predestined divine plot to get you to come to the table of honor at a banquet just at the right moment, seated next to the nation's high priest who knew you were coming and saved you a plate uh, where he could get you into position to anoint you as king over the entire nation of Israel. That's where we left off in 1 Samuel chapter 9 with a wide-eyed and heart-pounding, very impressive young man named Saul who would become even in tonight's text, the first king of Israel. Now, all of Israel, as you'll recall, has been bellyaching for a dashing, worldly, charismatic man who could proudly be presented, uh, really representing Israel at the would-be United Nations, you know, as this, this is our king, and look at him. He's our knight in shining armor, we had the Lord, but he was our king, but he was invisible, you know, and he's got all these moral codes. We'd prefer to have a king like all the other nations do. And so they're looking for this man who could live in a glitzy palace, throw, throw grand royal gala events, just like the Canaanites and the Egyptians and the Philistines, yada, yada, yada. So when Samuel, the high priest, sees Saul, you remember, he looks him over and he says, aren't you everything all Israel's been desiring? Because he's brutally handsome, he's impressive in his physique, he's wealthy, he's from a prominent family, and he stood out physically, really outwardly, the Bible says, heads and shoulders above the rest. And he had this quiet charm about him, Clearly, uh, very nice qualities about the young man. The problem was, of course, is that he had zero interest in spiritual things. He had all the outside trappings of what the world would consider, wow, successful, except he didn't have a heart for God. And this is going to plague him his entire life, and it's going to be his undoing. The Sauls of this world have been called the evangelist's worst nightmare because they are the classic nice girl or the nice guy, attractive, talented, well-liked, perhaps with money, someone who, by the world's standards, has it all. They don't have a felt need for God. They have zero interest in spiritual matters. I started thinking about this and I thought, you know, I, I'd rather have been poor and unattractive. I would have rather had a loathsome disease or a birth defect 
I'd rather have had a dysfunctional family and a lot of trouble in my life if any of those things would have helped me find eternal life, which some of those things in my life did help me find the Lord and continue to walk with the Lord, rather than to have all the trappings of outward success as coveted as all of that stuff is, if those things numbed my soul to uh, the soul's need for Jesus and I perish, a beautiful, rich, famous, talented, healthy, nice person, but I go down to everlasting darkness, then Jesus saying is true. What does it profit a person if they gain the whole world and lose their own souls? So unfortunately, uh, most of the people living the good life now, unfortunately, will not be living the good life when it counts in eternity. So we need to stop coveting what clearly is a trap to them because it doesn't help them in spiritual matters, it hinders them by and large. So before we even get started, I say, bless your infirmities, bless your unsightly crosses that you bear, bless and exalt and rejoice in your humbling circumstances because those are the things that helped you find Jesus. Those are the things that keep you independence on God. I mean, we're all dependent on God, but when we bear crosses and besetting sins and problems that we don't even like, those are the things that keep us aware of our dependence. And so those things aren't so bad. When you get to heaven, you may thank God for some of the things that you, you dislike now because they've helped you spiritually. So onward, uh, the, in the context here, so we can get dive in here, the mysterious banquet that Samuel and Saul were having has now ended, and handsome Saul has spent the night in uh, Samuel's guest room there up on Samuel's roof, and Samuel's talked with Saul all late into the evening, no doubt helping Saul to kind of digest and make sense of everything that's happening to Saul so quickly. Uh, morning has dawned, and it's time for Saul to return home to dad, and if you recall, uh, Dad just knows he sent Saul off to find his donkeys three or four days ago. He doesn't know anything has happened, right? And so uh, with that, um, with the morning now, Saul and his servant get ready. They come down from the roof. They go outside with Samuel. It's time for Saul to go home to his dad. And Samuel, uh, the three of them reach the edge of town. Samuel asks for a private moment with Saul. So they turn to the servant and say, would you mind? I've got something from the Lord to give to Saul. And of course, the servant obliges and walks on ahead. And there is uh, Saul listening to Samuel. And Samuel says, I have a word for the Lord before you leave. I've got something God wants you to know. And here it is, 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you leader over his inheritance? When you leave me today, you will meet two men near Rachel's tomb at Zelzah on the border of Benjamin. They will say to you, 
The donkeys you set out to look for have been found, and now your father has stopped thinking about them and is worried about you. He is asking, what shall I do about my son? And the cell phone. But that's, you don't see that in there. It's, it's, it's deeply rooted in the Hebrew. Thank you. Verse 3. Then you will go on from there. So first sign is you're going to meet somebody and they're going to tell you, hey, the donkeys, they're found. Your dad's upset. He's looking for you. Next, verse 3. Then you will go on from there until you reach the great tree of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there. One will be carrying three young goats, another three loaves of bread, and, a, and another a skin of wine. They will greet you and offer you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from them. After that, you will go to Gibeah of God, where there is a Philistine outpost. As you approach the town, you will meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high place with lyres, tambourines, flutes, harps being played before them, and they will be prophesying. The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you in power, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. So go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but, but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you're uh, to do. So Roman numeral number one, if you're taking notes, Saul's anointed king. So no sooner that Saul's servant walks off, out comes the anointing oil, and Saul is now officially king. Saul knows it, Samuel knows it, God knows it, but all of Israel is still in the dark, so now begins the chapter and a half process of letting everyone else know and establishing publicly what God has just done privately. So verse 1, a simple sentence, a simple action, but profound significance, and it's a strange sight to our eyes. You know, he says, okay, uh, Mr. Servant, would you mind going on ahead? I've got a word from the Lord for this young fella, and he takes out a flask of oil, unplugs it, unstops it, and pours it over his head. Now, that's a strange sight for us. Amen. <laughs> well, it wasn't to them. They knew exactly what was happening. Picture it like a royal coronation where they take a crown over the king's head and kind of place it slowly upon him. Now, instead of a crown, in their case, it was anointing oil. The crown, really, at a coronation, is really a symbol of God's blessing upon the, this person's head and life. God's divine favor and choosing and wisdom is upon this man to be king. And so as it is with a crown, it is with the oil, a spirit, uh, the symbol rather, of the spirit of God's choosing and his favor. Now, we've talked about this before. The word anoint in the Hebrew just means to pour or to uh, rub or to sprinkle. And the oil that is used is representative of God's spirit. But it, in Exodus chapter 30, it wasn't just any oil. They had a recipe 
for this sacred oil with, with all kinds of uh, ingredients and fragrances. And, and it could only, interestingly, it could only be used not for uh, personal aesthetics, but it could only be used to set somebody apart for God's purposes. And it couldn't ever be copied. It was kind of a secret recipe. You'll find that in Exodus chapter 30. It was just, you couldn't imitate uh, the calling of God. God calls. Man doesn't manipulate his way into God's service or work. God calls that person. And so there's a lot of symbolism there in just the act of anointing with the special sacred oil. Now, the relevance for us, of course, is two things. The Hebrew to anoint Mashiach, which is transliterated Messiah. So the word, the word Messiah means to anoint. And the idea behind to anoint is this is God's man. So really, all the little anointings of kings, kings priests, and kings swapped. Uh, of kings and priests in the Old Testament, all those little anointings is really pointing to the big anointing, which in Greek, the word Messiah is Christ. So you have Jesus Christ is Jesus the anointed one, the one who is uh, poured out with the Spirit. And of course, we saw that at Jesus' baptism there when the Holy Spirit descended upon him sort of in an anointing in bodily form as like a dove. And also, you know, in John chapter 12, Mary anoints Jesus with oil. She doesn't realize what she's doing, but she's really anointing the king. Um, and so that's the relevance for us. And, and secondly, also as Christians under the new covenant, um, as John and others tell us in the New Testament that we, Christians have an anointing from the Holy One. That's 1 John chapter 2 and verse 20. In other words, we too have been singled out and honored that the Holy Spirit comes upon us with power. And anybody who has faith in Jesus Christ, uh, the Holy Spirit comes in to regenerate us and empower us with gifts and graces that allow us to walk the Christian life in obedience to his commands. Believer, you have been anointed much like this young man, King Saul. I mean, didn't it happen to you kind of the way it's happening to King Saul? You, you thought you were going out doing something and suddenly you find yourself honored and you start believing that the Lord is God and then the Holy Spirit comes inside of you and, and, and honors you and regenerates you. Your footsteps have been guided and God has set up divine appointments. And before you know it, you're, you're seated with Christ in heavenly places, the New Testament says. It's the same idea. The anointing in the Old Testament is of the Lord first and then of his people because we are filled and chosen in the same sort of way. You are anointed. You are chosen. Do you live like that? So continuing on, Saul's now anointed. And in verses 2 through 8, um, Samuel gives him three signs. He's going to say, now listen, you're king now. Now, I know this is happening all to you very fast, but let me tell you, there are going to be three 
supernatural confirmations for you so that you will know this is really legit. And so within those three supernatural confirmations is going to be a little bit of a lesson. So it's not just the miraculous way God is going to confirm his word that Saul, you're king now, because they are miraculous ways. But the very the content of, of how he confirms sends a message if you're paying attention. And so let me just say, uh, lesson number one is that God has all the answers. That's what he's going to try to tell him. Uh, I love this. Any believer who has ever been challenged by God to do things beyond their own strength and ability and understanding will gladly tell of all the wonderful ways God first confirms his will and his presence to their hearts and lives and in their minds. God calls them and then confirms. That's just the way he works. And so he's going to confirm this. And as I said, there are three lessons. Lesson number one, God has all the answers. God can solve all your problems, Saul. Okay, here's a paraphrase of the first confirmation. First, he says, Saul, when you leave me, random guys at a random place like Rachel's tomb are going to walk up to you and tell you, listen, the donkeys you're looking for have been long found, and your dad could care less about the donkeys, and he's very concerned about you. That's what's going to happen. He prophesies the future. So you're going to go to this random place, and these random guys are going to walk up to you and say, hey, you, listen, about the donkeys, they're found. Your dad, he's upset. Now, I like this, because when you prophesy from God, there's specifics. They can be fact-checked and verified, and you can find out, are you right on or are, are you not? He doesn't say to a group of 500 people, somebody here has a headache. You know why? <laughs> Because with 500 people, somebody's bound to have a headache. The Holy Spirit, when he prophesies through somebody in the New Testament, man, alive, there are details and quotes and times and dates and bam, you know? Remember when he tells um, Ananias, he talks to Ananias and he says, go down to Straight Street. There you will find uh, Saul of Tarsus. He's staying with a tanner named this, this guy. I mean, he, he's giving him GPS directions, you, you, you know? Uh, you can know if uh, Samuel is a lunatic or not because he, when he gets to Rachel's tomb and nobody comes up to him, or somebody comes up to him and says, gee whiz, golly gee, I'm lost. Can you show me the way to Jerusalem? Uh, you know what, Samuel, you're off. Okay, but that's not how people prophesy biblically. Now, yes, this is a really cool thing that shows that God knows our footsteps. How did he, how does he do that? How mysterious is providence and how he guides and controls. But here, beyond the circumstance, as I said, the contents are significant. What's he saying? You're going to be king now. Lesson number one, I can solve all your problems. I know what you're worried about. And while you were uh, busy eating with Samuel at the banquet, guess who was rescuing the lost donkeys? It was me. I didn't need you to go run out and do every little thing. So you're going to be serving me now. I got your back. I don't expect you to control every little thing about your little world. I want you to uh, set your sights on doing my will. 
serve me and I'll take care of all the details. I know what's going on in your heart, what's concerning you. I'm the God who cares about you and can solve your problems. So that's lesson number one. It's not all up to you. It is not all up to you. It never has been all up to you. It is not all up to you right now, and it never will be all up to you. It's up to God. You have one job description, and that is to love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, to seek him first, and then everything else will fall into place. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I was just pausing, you know. It was a natural pause. Okay, lesson number two. Lesson number two, I'll tell you before I get there, here's the answer. Uh, God will always provide for you. All right, here's the paraphrase. All right, Saul, from there, you'll continue on to that famous huge oak tree. There you'll meet three random guys on their way to a worship service at Bethel Church. <laughs> it's really just Bethel, but yeah, threw in the church there for us. Uh, one guy's got the meat for the barbecue, one guy's got the three loaves of bread, and one, the third guy's carrying the drinks. The guy with the bread is going to offer you two of the three loaves, which you will take. Now, look at that. Genders, location, numbers, how many loaves specific, uh, actions, and of course, uh, that's what I've already said to you. They're verifiable. But look at the meaning. I'll always supply what you need. You're going to be king now. You've got a lot to worry about. Where are you going to get all the revenue? Where are you going to get all of this? How are you going to solve everybody's problem? I'm the one. And you'll always remember, in the confirmation of coming to me in your calling and what I expect you to do, I prove to you, you didn't have to go looking. Yeah, I know you're hungry. You didn't plan to be gone for five or six or seven days, how many days it's been. He's going to give you the two loaves of bread. You don't have to go out looking for it. I'm going to provide for you. I love what uh, Jesus says. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life like unbelievers do, about what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you're going to wear. Isn't life more important than all of that? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap. They don't go to work. They don't have savings accounts. And yet your Father in heaven feeds them. Don't you think you're a little bit more valuable than the sparrows? So don't worry. Stop saying, how are we going to pay our rent? What are we going to eat? What are we going to do? For unbelievers run after all these things, but your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and, and being right with him, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. What is he saying? He's saying the same thing to you and to me. You belong to me now. You're my problem. You're my responsibility. I don't have to worry. You do your part, of course. Don't lay around and pray for the two loaves to drop on your head, <laughs> because they won't. <laughs> the last sign's the best of all, and the answer first before we read the paraphrase. The lesson is, I'll make you able. It'll be by my strength that you'll accomplish what I'm calling you to do. Here's the paraphrase of 5 to 8. And by the way, we're not getting any much further than verse 8, just in case you're 
concerned about the pace. Uh, we're going to park right around 9 or 10. All right, here's the paraphrase of lesson number three and confirmation number three. All right, so Saul, continue on to Gibeah. As you approach the town, you'll run into a group of prophets coming back from a worship service. They'll be worshiping as they go, and you will enter in with them. The Holy Spirit will come upon you in power, and you're going to be a whole different man, changed. Once this happens, you can be assured of success, for God is with you now. After that, go on to Gilgal. I'll catch up with you there in about a week, and then I'll tell you what you're going to do from there. All right, so thirdly, now we get to the heart of the matter. It's always nice to know that God can solve my problems. I hope you all know that. And uh, that God will provide for all your needs. I hope you know that. But what can he expect of me? He expects me to walk with him. Am I up to that challenge? Can I really live the Christian life? Deny myself, pick up my cross and follow. Do I really have the power to tell myself no? Especially in, the, in my besetting sins, to live right before God, to walk worthy of him, to resist temptation, to live with character and faith and godliness, to live with wisdom. Everybody's watching me. They all know I'm a Christian now. I'm so prone to sin and weakness. Am I going to stumble? Are people going to find out that I'm not perfect? Am I going to blow it and make fools of everybody at the church and everybody who knows me and everybody thought I was a Christian and now look at me? Am I going to give in and commit adultery? Am I going to give in and commit some other sin? Are my doubts and my insecurities going to get a hold of me? <laughs> Are they going to win out? Am I going to make it to the end? Well, confirmation number three is, yeah, you are, because it's not up to you. When you come to Christ, God's spirit comes into you and changes you. If anybody be in Christ, they are new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Now you can love people. You will be able to be patient. You will be able to show God's kind of love by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by your own efforts. That will never happen. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says, who's up to the task of being who God wants us to be? Then he says, none of us. He says, but our confidence comes from God. He, he makes us confident by his spirit who gives us life. And so Samuel's really done with the word and Saul, his servants, no doubt, uh, impatient and, and waiting. It's time to go. So verses 9 through 13, uh, uh, he's been told now, these are your three signs. Look for them. They're going to happen. And here's what happens. Verses 9 through 13, then we'll reflect and we'll be done. As Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart. And all these signs were fulfilled that day. When they arrived at Gibeah, a procession of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came upon him in power, and he joined in their prophesying. When all those who had formerly known him saw him prophesying with the prophets, they asked each other, What is this that has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? 
a man who lived there answered, and who is their father? So it became a saying, a proverb. Is Saul also among the prophets? And after Saul stopped prophesying, he went to the high place. All right, let's talk about this last point, Roman numeral number three, Saul's changed life. Now, Saul is acting very differently, isn't he? Saul is a secular man, not a spiritual man. That's why everybody's flabbergasted by the change in him prophesying. And that we're wondering, aren't we, is Saul saved now from our point of view? What happened to Saul? Well, sadly, most theologians um, are slow to see salvation uh, based on the fruit of of Saul's uh, murderous life. He starts out pretty good, and you'll see some really positive things, and you think, oh, he's saved. And then as the chapters unfold, you see him trying to kill his own boy. Then for many chapters, he's trying to murder King David, a man after God's own heart. And then I think it's in chapter 22, the high priest and all of the priests at the temple there at Nob give aid to David. And Saul is in pursuit of David because he's jealous of David. He doesn't want to let his kingdom go. God's raising up David. And, and the priests at the temple give David, who's a fugitive from Saul, bread and a sword. Actually, it was the sword that uh, he killed Goliath with, and he gave it back to him. And then Saul finds out about that, and he kills all of the priests and their families. Now, people say, you know, John told us, you know that no murderer has eternal life in them. This was kind of not a one-time losing and snapping and killing somebody. This was sort of a pattern with him. So he's a real conundrum because the Holy Spirit's on him and God's changing his heart. Well, here's what Warren Wearsby said to help us through this. Warren says, when it says that God changes his heart, don't read into that New Testament regeneration. God changes his heart, but Saul doesn't change his own heart. The change that comes is about outlook and attitude. He'll act like a leader now. He'll act like a king. He'll be very different. The Holy Spirit will enable him as he walks in obedience to his will. But as he grows proud, independent, and rebellious, he loses the Spirit's power, his kingdom he loses, and even his own life. In the Old Testament, the Spirit could come and go on a person, not as in our dispensation, when the Spirit indwells forever, according to John 14, 16 through 17. Yes, we can grieve the Holy Spirit and quench the Holy Spirit, but a true believer cannot drive the Holy Spirit away. A person connected to Jesus through faith never has to pray what Old Testament David prayed, do not take your Holy Spirit from me, since Jesus said to his followers that would be impossible. So, you know, he's kind of a Judas. He's had an encounter with God. And Judas went out with the 12 and did spectacular deeds. He cast out devils. Judas did. He was one of the 12. 
And Judas is one of those on that great day when the Lord uh, will, he'll stand before the Lord and Judas will have to say, you know, oh, didn't I prophesy in your name and I was one of the 12 and I did great miracles through your power. And the Lord will say, but your heart, I, we, we never met really. You're really close and you know what they say about close, right? Close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. Uh, definitely not in salvation. Yeah, so uh, is Saul that perfect example of that Sermon on the Mount when many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Maybe. What is Saul doing? He's prophesying. So let me help you with that word prophesying. Prophesying means not necessarily predicting the future. So there's this company of prophets who we start to meet now. They are like young men who are in seminary. They're hanging out with guys like Elijah and uh, Elijah and Elisha, and they have like that they're supported by Israel and they're being raised up, and uh, they are the guys who are having a worship uh, time coming down from a worship service, and uh, the Holy Spirit empowers Saul to join them and to prophesy. So what prophesying means is they're proclaiming God's greatness, proclaiming His word. Praising and worshiping, not necessarily everybody shouting out predictions. That's not what it means. In fact, you know, in, in your New Testaments, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3, listen to this. But everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. You see, so it can be this way as far as an exhortation. So they're probably just praising God and Saul, Saul gets in there and he starts praising God like with quoting Psalms and those kinds of things. And people see that and they're really wowed. So some of the old acquaintances recognize him preaching and, and praising God on the street corner and they're floored. And someone says, it's kind of cool, is, is Saul one of the prophets? And the answer is, yeah, wow, he really is. And then it says, and by the way, that's where the proverb is Saul, one of the prophets, comes from. Now, in other words, when something would happen that you never thought would happen in a million years, and then you'd both look at each other, shrug your shoulders, and you would both say, uh, is Saul one of the prophets? Because just like we never thought that would happen with Saul, uh, this, whatever this is, happened. And so the text just tells you uh, Saul was so changed and it was so dramatic that uh, is Saul one of the prophets became a proverb. Now, there's a reason I stopped uh, at this verse, because as I was studying, I really felt like the Holy Spirit just wanted to exhort us to not be like Saul, who didn't cooperate with the Holy Spirit, but to be like a devoted Christian who has access <clears throat> to the power of God through the Holy Spirit and to the fullness of the Spirit. Now, I want to talk to you as we kind of wrap things up, and I'm going to offer us a time at the end of the, the service for you to be prayed for, either at the cross I know I'm going to be sitting here, and we're going to have an extended time. I'll dismiss, and everybody's free to go, when, as we usually do. But if you'd like to hang out and pray about a couple of the things I'm going to talk to you about now, feel free to do so. Um, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
Unfortunately, I think it's named the wrong thing. But there is an, an action of a filling of God's Spirit. When you become a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. You cannot be a Christian without the Holy Spirit. And Romans chapter 8 and verse 9 says that. And there is only one baptism. It says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So at conversion, you have the Holy Spirit and you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, there is another kind of uh, Christian event called the filling of the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, be continually filled with the Spirit. Now, he wouldn't say be filled with the Spirit if you already were. Now, we have the Holy Spirit, all Christians do, but not all of us live in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And so what's on my heart tonight is to offer you and me a chance to kind of seek the Lord and ask him for his empowerment that the Holy Spirit would come upon us in a fresh and new way to fill us. There are so many weak Christians, even in this place, that are struggling and overcome with fears and doubts and anxiety and guilt. You, you don't have a strong desire to serve the Lord. And you're afraid to open your mouth with the gospel. You just feel like, you know, I'm barely hanging on. And, you know, I'm just praying that the rapture happened tonight, you know. <laughs> so we all are praying that. However, the Christian life is supposed to be full of power. Listen to John the Baptist. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Is that your experience? Is there a fire burning in you? Are you overcoming your sin? Do you wake up and you can read the Bible and understand and you actually want to spend five or ten minutes with the Lord or more? Or do you even, you don't even want to pray and you're just weary and burdened and during the worship time you're just like, oh, I'm not in his singing and I just wish this singing would be over because you're not full with the Holy Spirit. He says, ask James says in chapter 4 of James' epistle, you know, you spiritually lack because you don't ask God. And then Jesus says, blessed are you when you hunger and thirst for a right relationship with God because then you'll be full. And that, so all he wants us to do is ask and desire. Jesus said, you know, you guys are fathers and, and you guys have an evil nature. But you know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more so the Father knows how to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. We're supposed to be asking for the fullness of the Holy Spirit. No wonder we have such a hard time just living day to day as Christians. It's because we're not full, empowered. Your marriage, your relationships, your private sins... You're not designed to live the Christian life half-heartedly and in defeat and in miserable, miserableness. Misery would have been a better word there. 
You're just not designed for that. And then the devil come around and say, oh, look at you. What kind of life is this? It's boring. You know what is boring? Of course, because you're not filled with that burning fire of the Holy Spirit. It's not an emotion. I'm not telling you, oh, get fired up. I'm not saying that. I'm saying open your heart to the living God. Cooperate with him. Oh, I've asked. Yeah, on your way somewhere in the car, you know, fill me with the Holy Ghost, whatever. You know, he wants a little commitment, a little bit like you really mean it. And so none of this forced nonsense and manipulation. I'm just saying, I don't want to live a half-hearted Christian life. Besides, guess what? You can't. You just can't. The world, the flesh, the devil, my word. We gotta be filled with the Spirit. And so, with that little exhortation, a man is gonna come. We're just gonna concentrate, open up our hearts. You know what? The only thing left to do tonight is pull up the covers and go to sleep. I mean, there's not, not more screaming at us. I mean, we don't have to run off, but you can take your time. If you do need to go, you can be blessed in doing so. But I just want to say there are going to be people over at the cross prepared to lay hands on you and just pray. Nobody's going to shake you or push you down on the ground. You're not going to hear anybody speak in tongues unless it's out of your own mouth. And that's quite possible. Here's the fruit of how you know you're filled with the Spirit. There's power to live the Christian life. You're walking holy. That just means separated. You're overcoming. We see some love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control. We see those things. That's how you know. Not by acting crazy and out of control. That's, not, that's a fruit of something else. <laughs> now, God can give you a prayer language. It's called the gift of tongues. But I don't think that's necessarily the sign of being filled with the Holy Spirit. I think it can be a sign. But other things, other gifts, but the fruit of the Spirit and holy living and a heart that really desires God and no more game playing, that means you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just, we see what happened to Saul uh, we want that to happen to us only, Father, we want to cooperate. We want to be changed. Not, not just the day we gave our heart to you, but every day. We just need newness of life. We need you to breathe upon us and light that fire in our hearts and give us the strength, the moral fortitude to walk for God in a crooked and perverse generation with all the peer pressure all the, all the temptation from without and from within. So we're opening our hearts tonight, Father, in prayer. We just pray that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit. Give us new power and strength to walk with you in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>